0: Standard issue listeners get ten percent off their first month at BetterHelp dot com slash standard. That's Better H E L P dot com slash standard.
1: Standard issue for all women. Hello
0: and welcome to episode 169 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I don't mean to start the podcast on a downer, but I am a fucking furious. Why? Turns out that in recent research by Prepley to find the most foul mouthed nations of the world, the UK came a paltry 10th. 10th! That's bollocks! Even Canada. Canada ranked higher than our sorry arses with our neighbours France taking the top spot la bastards anyway your homework this week dear listener is to do more cursing or shit off surely a quick look at the news will have you frothing obscenities I mean it certainly does a trick for me there is no news from us this week it is just me at the top thank you Bank Holiday you were a delight to tell you that coming up I chat to comedian and fellow podcaster. is that a word like a musketeer yeah With the Musketeer of podcasts, you heard me. Rosie Wilby about breaking up, relationship lessons and why lesbians know best when it comes to leaving. Jen's been on the Zoom with comedian and author Shappi Sandy about Emma Hamilton, who went from maid, model, dancer, prostitute and actress to mistress of Lord Nelson and the protagonist of Shappy's new YA book, Kissing Emma. And Hannah outs me as the Philistine I am as the two of us watch 1951's A Streetcar Named Desire for Rated or Dated and get all hot under the collar about the genius of Tennessee Williams. Join us. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by comedian, writer, fellow podcaster, and accidental relationship guru, Rosie Wilby. Rosie, hello. Hello, Mickey. <laughs> First of all, congratulations for you are engaged to be wed.
1: Yes, I am. We've got a date for next June, so that's exciting. It's the first time for me that I've ever been engaged to be married. The only other proposal I ever had was before civil partnerships even existed. Mm -hmm. It was back in the 1990s, so there was no way, really, of gay people getting married. So we couldn't go ahead with it. And anyway, that relationship, I think had come to its end anyway because we we suddenly had to grow up right at the end of our 20s when my partner and I we had a terrible house fire and lost all of our stuff and I think my partner's proposal it was actually in the toilets at a curry house (laughs) when we were both black with soot having been sorting through our our burnt belongings and seeing what we could salvage and I think it was her way of trying to make things better but we we actually looked at each other and went no <laughs> you know we knew we were gonna break up but do it very amicably and remain friends uh, but we'd been through this weird loss together and and then sadly lost the relationship as well but as I say remained friends but the funny thing was that all our friends kind of looked for old clothes they could lend us and uh, one friend gave me this bag of stuff and it even contained her brownie uniform
0: her brownie uniform wow i I mean i don't know when i was gonna wear that (laughs) i assume you're gonna wear it next june for
1: the wedding well there we are that could be a bit different couldn't it i'm not sure i shall fit into it very well (laughs) (laughs) oh details details I know. Well, people do like to try and lose weight for the wedding, don't they? So there's a motivation. I've got to be (laughs) the size of a a 12-year-old girl. or How old do you have to be? I don't know. What age did you go up into guides? I can't even remember.
0: I was in the girls' brigade rather than the brownies. So I think Uh, we had a more level once you joined. You just stayed until you were, what, 70 in some cases, I think.
1: (laughs) some people can't let go no they're
0: just just <laughs> clinging on just want more badges badges
1: are great oh yeah absolutely <laughs> anyway this is off topic isn't it its is, so let's but, get back I don't know, on topic. maybe maybe the brownies ah but here's a link for you right maybe the brownies should have had a relationship badge maybe that would have been good training for your adult relationships and even a breakup badge
0: maybe a little bit too young to be dealing with it. I'm not ruling it out. I'm just, you know, raising a, maybe an young. issue. <laughs> Start of <laughs> young. Start young. <laughs> I'm curious about your wedding though, because you, you've made quite the name for yourself talking about breakups from your show, The Conscious Uncoupling <laughs> in 2016 to your podcast, yeah. Breakup Monologues and the book of the same name. Is Getting Hitched going to dint
1: your brand? <laughs> well, no, because my book that I've just put out is very much about how you can learn from your breakups how to actually stay together. Mm -hmm. I'm very much pitching breakups as an opportunity for growth and healing and transformation and for making better choices in the future. So I think actually being engaged and getting married is sort of the proof in the pudding that my theory that breakups can be good that that theory is is holds water and that it works and that we you know we can actually learn from those breakups so uh, yeah that's that's I guess my theory and my my thinking
0: (laughs) I've got more than my fair share of breakup woes and joys but you have said on more than one occasion that if you really want to know about breakups ask a lesbian so Rosie I would like (laughs) you to tell me about the who what's when's and how's of breakups that you have learned over your years of serial (laughs) monogamy
1: Yeah, lesbians are statistically proven to be the most serially monogamous group in society. Our divorce rates are the highest. Before that, our civil partnership rates were the highest. And we do separate at many, many times the rate of gay men, which is interesting. It sort of turns all our social and cultural stereotypes on its head, doesn't it? This idea that we have that men would be the the cheating, wandering rogues. (laughs) But I think women you know do get restless in long-term relationships as well and perhaps are more able to just say it and call time on a relationship and say look i'm i'm not happy <laughs> i'm going so you do see that even in the heterosexual world as well 75% of divorces are initiated by the woman so yeah there we are so it kind of makes sense that that lesbian partnerships would dissolve at the highest frequency of all but i guess the things that i learned in my book were that some of the main reasons for breakups, well, sex is probably number one, mm-hmm. which is why I, in one chapter in the book, I go to a sex lab where I try to understand my <laughs> own sexuality a bit better. And I take part in one of these experiments that people may have read about where you sort of sit in a lab and you watch erotica and the, your genital arousal is being measured by this little device called a plasismograph, And I call it a techno-tampon because it's basically <laughs> a little kind of, I don't know, silicone tampon with wires poking out of it going into a load of machines and and measuring your vaginal lubrication and the equivalent for a man when he's doing the experiment is a little sort of rubber band with um, uh, (laughs) you know, kind of some kind of electric conducting material in it so they can see whether the rubber band... (laughs) Yeah, exactly! (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, human sexuality is just so weird, isn't it? I wanted to understand better the difference, the sort of nuanced difference between my social and cultural identity as a lesbian, which feels pretty fixed. And that's how I've identified in the world because the majority of my important relationships and connections have been with women. Mm -hmm. But also that more kind of basic animal instinct, that sexual drive that we have, that I think for many, many women is more broad than the sort of label we put on it ourselves and I think we don't always admit to that and so you know looking at sort of naked men and naked women I felt kind of equally intrigued by all of it really I, I don't mind the sight of a naked man in fact it's quite interesting because it's it's a bit different for me I don't often see them um, <laughs> so, so you know uh, techno cock rings all round <laughs> I'm all for it
0: So let's get back to breakups. My wise little Ma once said to me, as I was probably in floods of tears on the phone to her yet again, Mickey, however a relationship goes, you're going to learn something. Sometimes you'll learn something you don't want from the next one. Other times you'll learn something that you do want from the next one. More often than not, it's something you don't. But breakups can undoubtedly be a good thing in our personal evolution, right?
1: Oh, I absolutely think so and there is a chapter in my book called The Good Breakup which is really all about those people particularly women who have found a sense of reinvention new creativity and gone off on new adventures in the wake of a breakup and I do think now being single can be an incredibly liberating and empowering and freeing time you know I perhaps shouldn't be so celebratory about being single now I'm in a relationship and due to get married but you know I do think it's nice to know that being single a relationship breakup isn't necessarily the end of the world it's it's a beginning of something else Mm -hmm. I actually in my book write deliberately have written the first half in a backwards timeline and the second half in a forwards timeline to play with the idea that beginnings and endings are actually the same because an ending of something is always the beginning of something else and that might be really really exciting
0: definitely I think also we should maybe start to be more evangelical about being a single woman without having to have gone through a breakup. Like I know loads of women who have chosen to go it alone and they're doing all these things and having all this freedom that gets celebrated once a woman has come out, the kind of crying and eating ice cream stage of a breakup. And, you know, having a bloke or a woman round when they fancy for a bit of hanky-panky. Oh God, I've turned into my (laughs) mother. Um, But maybe if we celebrated that more from day dot with little girls instead of this romantic ideal of and then you'll meet a someone... People would deal with breakups better anyway.
1: Yeah, I I think so. And I think it's just undoing some of that programming that we have from the romantic songs and the romantic films. This is another reason why I sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek say, if you want to know about breakups, you should ask a lesbian. Because I do think that the queer community have... just one little step ahead of the broader heteronormative community in trying new things in relationships in pioneering new concepts Mm -hmm. I think lesbians did pioneer conscious uncoupling long before Gwyneth Paltrow and I think that gay men particularly have played with non-monogamy and experimented with open relationships long before that started becoming a wider conversation that Mm -hmm. people feel they might now be able to have Uh, we've talked about concepts like friends as family and thinking of alternative ways of looking at community and family that aren't so pressurized around the sense of having to have children and having sort of nuclear biological family unit so i do think because you know queer people have been outside the norms of marriage and having children i mean now we can do those things but whilst we've been outside of those things we've sort of played with creative concepts around relationships and actually what might work better for the way the human psyche works when we're in love and falling out of love because this narrative of you're going to stay with one person forever and ever and ever well
0: (laughs) it's it's a little toxic (laughs) isn't it and we're living longer it's harder than it used to be but I would also add to that I think it it doesn't surprise me at all that the queer community are, are one step ahead or like 12 steps ahead of heteronormativity but i would also add that women who who are heterosexual and choosing to go it alone or women who are gay and choosing it to go alone like need to be celebrated totally
1: yeah i totally agree yes i think that's been another evolution in recent years is that we have seen the evolution of the single woman as women become more financially independent Mm -hmm. and are, are able to afford to do that and also just the cultural constructs around that have become less toxic you know we don't really hear spinster and all those kind of horrible words anymore we do sort of see instagram posts about strong women strong single women and that is much more celebrated now
0: hooray for difference and long may it continue but back to (laughs) us who are both paired up i just got married you're about to get married Uh, (laughs) so yeah let's talk more about breakups what is the kindest way to break up with someone (laughs)
1: Well I just mentioned conscious uncoupling and even though I do think that the brand of it now is so strongly associated with Gwyneth it feels yeah, it's a little a bit changes yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um but I think the idea behind that of maintaining some kind of conscious closeness with an ex given that you've shared all that history you've created those memories perhaps you've had children shared a home shared friends perhaps had pets or you know other things that bond you together Mm -hmm. you know you will have got to know one another's parents and other relatives so do you really want to completely jettison all of that and sort of begin all over again in a sort of revolving door serial monogamy cycle which gets really (laughs) exhausting so i do think that conscious uncoupling is a good idea where possible because then you know you you can remain amicable stay friends you can hang out together maybe i mean it's very common in the lesbian community and my ex and her partner would sometimes come over for for dinner and stuff with me and my partner (laughs) it's really it's really sort of quite relaxed and, and quite common to do that kind of thing and stay close in the queer community and i think i know lots of straight people who do that too
0: Yeah and I think if it is possible that it is it just seems the kindest way and the best way for everyone involved although I would also say sometimes the kindest way is to just rip that plaster off throw that plaster in the bin and then never think about plasters again.
1: (laughs) Yeah sometimes sometimes I agree Uh, you know sometimes perhaps things have become a bit too toxic too painful uh, for both parties to deal with you know there is one of my exes who I don't really have much contact with, and she is the one who dumped me by email wow. <laughs> a decade ago. And I, that's what kickstarted my whole obsession with breakups because I joked at the time I felt much better after correcting her spelling and punctuation. <laughs> <laughs> You know, in reality, when you are the person getting dumped after, you know, five years together, it does come as as a shock, particularly when it's delivered like that. Although, of course, now we've seen this evolution of this new lexicon of breakups where we have all these behaviours like ghosting and breadcrumbing and submarining. <laughs> and so... I can never tell
0: whether they're awful or sexy. <laughs> yeah.
1: So now we have ghosts. I guess an email breakup might be quite quaint and polite. <laughs> she was just ahead of the curve, like all the lesbians are.
0: Okay, so I have no doubt that someone listening will be going through a breakup right now. So what are your top tips to get through those first few weeks?
1: Well, I think reach out to friends, which of course has not been easy during a pandemic, but sharing your story, lots of scientific studies have shown that sharing your story with supportive people is a great way to start to process it and start to feel like it has a more positive ending or potentially will have eventually. Um so that's really, really important. And that's partly why I've started the Breakup Monologues podcast and, and now we're in the book, of course, because we create that sense of community, particularly mm-hmm. when we do live shows where people are literally sharing their story and then people in the audience are nodding and relating. And so you feel like you're not weird to have gone through this huge emotional upheaval and have experienced all these very very powerful emotions and felt like you're withdrawing from a drug and (laughs) and all of this stuff because it
0: feels so isolating but people go through this every day we are definitely not on our own even though it feels very lonely sometimes
1: absolutely so that, that i think that's really important is to share your story with, with people and feel like you're not alone because other people will go oh my god I, I felt like that too and I've come through the other side of it so that's really useful I think also exercise if you can bear it kind of getting the blood pumping mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> is, is good trying to keep to some kind of eating and sleeping routines if you, if you can the early hours of the morning when you sort of wake up in a real panic and heartbroken kind of angst can often be the worst. So if there is anyone you know who is either an insomniac or is in a different part of the world, and it's going to be awake at that time that you can message. You know that is really a good time to do that. So I think, yeah, just just having friends around you, but also some of the cliches about chocolate and ice cream are not entirely far off the mark because chocolate does release dopamine. So, and an evolutionary anthropologist who came onto the podcast told me that. So that <laughs> I'm, I'm taking that. Let's have that. Yeah, as a fact. that is proper science that chocolate <laughs> will help you. And the other thing that I definitely endorse is stroking dogs and cats, stroking your pets, um, having lovely animal cuddles. That will definitely release oxytocin, which is the lovely cuddle chemical that we often feel when we are hugging our partners, but you can also feel it when you when you hug your gorgeous little animals and uh, my dog and my cat do appear (laughs) often in the story in the book so I think there are a lot of pet lovers who've enjoyed the stories of dog and cat and the kind of territorial battles in the house because it starts off with myself and my cat sort of being pitted a bit against girlfriend and dog (laughs) uh, because I was more of a cat person and girlfriend is more of a dog person but ultimately dog does win me over because she's (laughs) she's gorgeous she was really naughty as a puppy but she is wonderful so i think all of these things can help to take you forward to the next stage in your life where hopefully you're gonna have wonderful single times or meet somebody new or you know focus on interesting career projects creative projects and i think there's definitely an other side after the breakup where things are exciting and new and fresh
0: those beginnings you were talking about yeah so your next live podcast is at the London Podcast Festival on Friday which is the 3rd of September who have you got and
1: where can people get tickets it's uh, all at King's Place which is very handily close to King Cross it and is. Pancras very good for transport links it's on friday the third of september at seven o'clock and my guests are anya magliano Vic slayton and also an author hayley mcgee who's written another fantastic book about breakups called the ex-boyfriend yard sale and she sort of talks about the cost of love and how she did this interesting performance show where she uh, did a a yard sale she's from Canada so she calls it yard sale I guess what would we call it we'd call it like a boot, car boot, sale. A car boot yeah. sale yeah where she sold off all the things that her ex-boyfriends had given her so she was trying to find a sort of value for those you know kind of old items that represented kind of old loves Vix has already told me that she wants to talk a lot about friendship breakups and that has been a really interesting thread of discussion on the podcast and on social media and there's a chapter in the book all about friendship breakups which I think a lot of women really respond to that mm. and feel like that's almost been something more painful than romantic Yeah
0: um, and there's not as much language around it or films about it or books about it. No I think that's absolutely fascinating yeah. because we outgrow people and people like outgrow us yeah. Fix is great, she's a big friend of the show, you'll have a lovely time and there'll be a lot of sequins, yeah. I can promise you that. That's
2: so where Fantastic.
0: can people find out more about what you're up to you on the socials rosie
1: yes i'm at rosie Willby on twitter and at breakup monologues on instagram
0: it's been absolutely fascinating thank you so much for chatting with me
1: oh well i'd love it if people do get a chance to read the book i also narrated the audiobook so there is that version available too awesome thank you very much
3: I'm joined by comedian, writer and author of the new young adult fiction, Kissing Emma, <laughs> Shappy Kossandi. Hello, Shappi. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you?
4: I'm very, very well, thank you.
3: Excellent. So this new book, Kissing Emma, is being published as part of a series of books called the Bellatrix series. I've interviewed previously for the podcast, Kieran Millwood, Hargrave and... Kit Duval, who both also have had books in the series and I think it's a great series and the whole idea is obviously to write female-centred books for young adults so I wondered if you could tell me first of all how you'd sort of come to to get involved in that.
4: Well, I was asked, basically, in a nutshell, it was as simple as that, but I um, did a show at the Edinburgh Festival about Emma Hamilton, and I'm quite obsessed with her story, and have been quite a lot of my life. So Emma Hamilton was the love of Horatio Nelson's life. So Horatio Nelson, obviously a massively significant figure in British history, you know, the Battle of the Nile, the Battle of Trafalgar, amongst his greatest hits. And, you know, they built this big column in Trafalgar Square because without Nelson, there wouldn't have been an empire. And all of that history that we were taught at school. And as a footnote, they talked about Emma Hamilton. And she was made quite a joke of because he was married and she had once worked in a brothel. And so they didn't talk about the fact that he was madly and deeply in love with her. And they made a a a huge intellectual connection what the victorians did because they wanted to make nelson uh, about trafalgar they absolutely sullied her image in history and made her out to be uh just you know another uh georgian woman who'd nabbed herself you know a, a powerful man so then when i got older I read more about the history, understood more about the predicament of women of Emma's social class back then. So something like one in six women in her time worked at some point as sex workers in Covent Garden. And they were so young. There's, there's actually a list, almost review. And a lot of these girls that they were talking about were 12. You wow. know, they were just very young. And that is the London that Emma Hamilton came to penniless, fatherless, brotherless, no man, you know, back then. Without a man, you um, were were in massive danger of becoming destitute. So what she had was her looks and her wits and her talent. This woman was phenomenally talented. And, uh, you know, she went out with aristocratic men. Uh, She had a baby. She was forced to give her baby away. So the story of Emma, in a nutshell, is massive. And the way she was treated by men in, you know, the highest echelons was a disgrace. But the worst thing I I found out when I explored Emma's story as an adult was when he was on the HMS Victory, about to go into Trafalgar. Nelson changed his will and he wrote a a codicil, I think they're called, an add-on to his will saying that in the event of my death all I ask of my king and country is to look after Emma Hamilton and our adopted daughter, Horatia. She wasn't adopted. She was their natural daughter, but they had to pretend because he was married. And he wrote, this is all I ask of my king and country as I go to fight her battle. And they didn't honour this. You know, they didn't honour this. They let heartbroken Emma spiral into alcoholism. And she ended up in a debtor's prison after having this like life that she'd built for herself. And she ended up um, a derelict alcoholic refugee in Calais seeking refuge from her debts and died of psoriasis of the liver at a young age. And she, their daughter, Horatia, uh, fled back to the, the UK and had to deny who she was to people because... She didn't want to be sullied by the reputation of her mother or perhaps implications of the debts. And this is a horrific story mm. of, of what happened to this woman. And it sort of burns me <laughs> sometimes when I see Nelson's column and hop Hip-up Horatio, Hippo and like here's the hero, but they let him down. They let, I mean, obviously, I know historically he's a very problematic character with um, our modern values and our modern sensibilities, But Nelson and Emma were a massive celebrity couple in Georgian days. In fact, in those days, they had more gossip magazines than we have in modern day. But the minute he died, she was then, because of her class, just shoved back down Mm. into a pit, into a well, and wasn't allowed to crawl back up again. So for me, when I was asked, like, do you have a historical figure? I think then, I think a lot of them were fiction. They were thinking of fictional figures. But I said, no, I want to tell the story of a girl who in society's eyes has no prospects. And in modern day, today, what could a girl in Emma's position do? And have things changed in the way they are preyed upon? Do they have more agency? And um, what what are the support networks now for girls of her social class? What options do they have? My Emma, I think, that I wrote about in the book, is someone like Emma Hamilton back in 2021.
3: How do you think those things kind of remain relevant now?
4: Denial of education is a huge thing. Not reaching kids who are from more challenging backgrounds whose parents don't have the cultural capital to fight for more for their children Hmm. so emma's mom is someone who knows her place like in my school i went to a big state comprehensive school and i saw how like a lot of kissing Emma I say 2021 but I'll be honest with you I've drawn a lot from my school years in the 80s. It's kind
3: of timeless isn't it really but I mean that's sort of the problem.
4: No absolutely so I went to um, a school which in a lot of ways traumatized me because I saw violence every day and I saw kids including me being pigeonholed you're the one that will go to university, you're the one that won't. So in my school, there were the middle-class girls who in my book I call the Charlottes, Emma calls them the Charlottes. Mm. And then there are the girls who are just left by the wayside. There's no expectation of them, and boys as well. And it's the ones who have parents who can see the bigger picture for their children. But a lot of parents can't see the bigger picture for their children and we don't have systems in place to go and find those kids who have ambition and who have talent and they fall by the wayside.
3: It's been the news really recently about how the children of kind of you know like sharp elbowed middle class families are doing better than other children especially in the current situation whereby you know, all of the homeschooling and and, yeah. and grades being assessed by the schools, et cetera, et cetera.
4: I've had both things. I, I've had the. Sh- I am a sharp elbowed uh, middle class yeah. mother. But when I went to school, my parents were completely all at sea, you know, new country, lots of troubles on their plate. And I learned pretty quickly at my school. That being, like, not white was bad enough, but being working class was harder. And I learned to... I gave myself a middle-class accent because I learned that that's how you got away with things. Now, my tr- my problem at school was I was dyslexic and I had ADHD and it was never discovered. I was just written mm-hmm. off as a dunce. So I thought, well, well, I can... Instead of saying to people, I'm really struggling when I, I I love history, but this like black curtain comes down in my mind in class or when I'm trying to do my homework and I don't know how to shift it. I had no place to say that to, so I would try and get away. With not doing my homework, I'm so sorry, Miss, but I wasn't able to do that because we have, you know, you know where we have visitors from Iran and blah blah blah, and they'd go, "All oh, right, fine," mm-hmm. but they just thought I was, you know, thick. What I saw at my school, I saw it happen to other kids, and as as a child and as a teenager, you haven't got the ways to call out inequality like that. Mm-hmm. Steve McQueen went to my school. I went out for a drink with my old PE teacher a few weeks ago and it was the most healing drink I'd ever had because we talked about our school because he was a young teacher and he also saw and he said that they didn't let Steve McQueen do art. They didn't let him do art because he was also dyslexic and he was black, a black boy and at that school in the 80s, a former grammar school that was still trying to have grammar school status, he was written off. Mm. And I saw it. I saw it as a child. I could see this happening. And he went on to win the Turner Prize, you know? And it really makes me cry sometimes when I think how kids like him and me were made to feel. Now, us, obviously, I'm not comparing my success to his. But there were people like me and him who didn't make it in show business and still don't have a voice to talk about how much they were underrated. And it was like a sheep dip. Get them in, get them in, get them out. Get them in, get them out. No problems. And my PE teacher was incredible when I saw him a few weeks ago. He sat in this pub in Ealing and he said to me, your failure at school. Wasn't because your parents were foreign, wasn't because you had ADHD or dyslexia, it's because we failed you. Well,
3: yeah, of course. That's
4: failed you. But all my life, mm. I've just gone, oh, it's just my mum and dad, they couldn't push us forward. Da, 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 da. Mm. And this still happens now. Not, I mean, obviously, we've moved on so much culturally, but kids are still frequently falling by the wayside because teachers in schools just simply don't have the resources. Mm to reach everybody. So when I was writing Emma I wanted to sort of show how much of that has to come from within. Mm. You know, if you don't have the privilege of class and of money and of sharp elbowed parents um what can you do? What happens to you? Mm. What does it take to pull yourself out and find the support that you need? And in Emma's case She knows that she's got to earn money to help her mum move out of her grand's house because they're in a really bad housing situation. And she gets with guys who have families who are a bit more ambitious for their children and they don't want Emma to go out with their sons. She's trouble. Emma's the sort of girl you have fun with. She's not the girl you end up with. She's not the girl that you nurture a relationship with. And that's just like Emma Hamilton. She was just seen as a good time girl uh, uh, but, but Nelson was the first man who didn't see her like that and also in my book I didn't want there to be a male hero at the end who finally sees Emma for the for the person that she is I wanted her to rescue herself I wanted her to be rescued by friends not people that wanted her body you know So for me, it was quite a cathartic book to write in that respect. And I really enjoy writing teenagers. Um, My other book, Nina's Not Okay, was also a teenager because I think in a lot of ways, I'm so stuck in in undoing a lot of my own teenage stuff, particularly to do with education. So in
3: the blurb of the book, it describes a world obsessed with money status and looks. I wondered how you think that kind of manifests in the lives of young people today.
4: Well, that obsession to look a certain way and have looks as your currency, mm. if you're a woman, especially. I know that there are parallels with some men, but looks being your currency is still prevalent. Uh, we have a long, long, long way to go. And, and then I think what happened in Emma's time, she... She had no option and she was followed by other women who adored her style. The fact that she was Romney's muse, so people would come from miles to see her. The paintings of Emma where she wore her hair down, which was considered quite a wild thing to do. And she was, I think, she more or less invented the wonder bra. She padded her corsets to give herself a cleavage. And she sort of looked in the camera, sort of straight on, not in the camera, at the artist straight mm. on and and was seen as very sort of, you know, come and get me sort of page three, I guess, would be the 80s version and OnlyFans accounts that people have figured out to make money from. Now, the idea of making money from your looks has always been there for mm. men and women. You know, I have no judgment on... But there's a reason that. why it
3: exists, isn't there? Like yeah. that's, there's, a, there's a market for it. Yeah, so. absolutely.
4: There's a market. But, you know, you can do that, but be in control of it. So my Emma gets chances to do that, but she's not in control of it. Mm. And I think that is the really, really important thing. And, and also I was talking to my friend about this. So I'm, I'm raising, you know, a daughter mm. who is eight and, you know, she is, uh, I took her to football today. She was wearing shorts and on the way she was talking about the hairs on her legs. And she goes, I used to be very nervous about my hairy legs, but I think I'm okay now. And I said to her, no one wants us to be happy with the way we look. Mm. Because if we're happy with the way we look, we won't spend money on waxing. We won't spend money on all the things to make ourselves look like dolphins. Um, <laughs> dolphins. We're not meant to look like dolphins and I said to her, no one talks about, you know, your brother's hairy legs. No one, you know, your brother doesn't look like hairy legs. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very mindful, as, as gently as possible, without lecturing her, making her understand that the only person that matters with regards to her looks and how she feels about them is her. What would you
3: like young people to take away from the book?
4: What I would like young people to take away from my book is not be judgmental towards someone because of their appearance, not dismiss someone as someone that can't be part of your gang just because they're not the rest of you. They don't look or sound like the rest of your gang. And also understand that people's backgrounds have a massive impact with the struggles that they have. And to be forgiving of people who mess up because everyone is trying to find a way to feel comfortable in their own skin. And that's a long journey. And the more we judge people for what they say or how they look, the bigger the divide that we create between us um where actually we could be looking at common ground which is much more helpful for everybody
3: kissing emma is published on the 2nd of september which is tomorrow if you're listening on wednesday Shafi, where can we follow what you're up to on social media
4: i'm on twitter a lot i'm trying to get more people to follow me on instagram because that would encourage me to do more posts on Instagram but at the moment the most people follow me on Twitter so that's where a lot of my info goes Instagram and Twitter and shappy.co.uk is my website that's currently under construction what's your Twitter handle oh yes my Twitter handle is at Shappy corsandy and also I'm I'm touring a show called it was the 90s about the 90s and what that was like for a young woman like me. But I would dearly love more younger people to come to my 90s show so I can see what they they think because a lot of the young people that come to see their work in progress shows are <laughs> like, oh, wow, you are messed up. But it's really, it's um a very funny look back and also the conclusions that like 48-year-old me looking back at, four, at 25-year-old me because I have gone against a lot of the core values that I had. When I was 23, um, but also looking at 23 year old me, she was going against a lot of her core values, but she didn't know how not to. So it was the 90s as my tour that I like okay. to listen
3: to. Well, that sounds very interesting. I'll, I'll have a look at that. Shappy, thank you so much for chatting to me today and all the best with the book and with the show.
4: Thank you very much.
0: Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah! Hannah! What did we watch this week?
2: So, this week we watched, as evidenced there, 1951's (laughs) A Streetcar Named Desire. And in the interest of accommodating as much chat as possible about one of cinema's sacred cows, I'm going to keep this bit short. Oscar glory, tick. Critical acclaim, tick. Box office readies, tick library of congress tick ops simpsons parody tick directed by elia kazan and if you don't know much about him google him because it's that a whole story it stars marlon brando and vivian lee ditto them on the google thing and of course it's based on the pulitzer prize winning play by tennessee williams who i wouldn't bother googling just skip straight to a biography the man was fascinating The film tells the story of Blanche Dubois, a fading southern belle, which is 1950s for 30, who arrives (laughs) on the New Orleans doorstep of her younger sister Stella, played by Kim Hunter, and new brother-in-law Stanley, with a -a cockamamie story. Stanley smells a rat, and Stella, who is pregnant, increasingly finds herself in the middle of deteriorating relations in their tiny claustrophobic flat. When Stanley finds out Blanche's secrets and wrecks her growing romance with his friend Mitch, who's played by Carl Morden, things go from bad to very, very much worse and considerably downhill from there. In the end, Blanche is carted off to an asylum and Stella, well, in a crucial change from the play, which I would very much like to discuss later, she takes her baby and leaves Stanley. I'm pretty sure anyone who listens to this podcast knows I love Tennessee Williams. So before we go on to discuss the 1951 film, I just wanted to take a moment to say something about the source material. As you'll know, Mick, obviously, because you were there, we went to see A Streetcar Named Desire a few years ago at the Royal Court in Manchester. And not long after that, we went to see A Taste of Honey. And I felt the contrast between them really clearly because A Taste of Honey is a great play but it's of its time in Mm -hmm. a way that I don't think A Streetcar Named Desire is. Because like, holy shit, domestic violence, sexual violence, believing victims, women's mental health, the old world and the new world colliding. I think only The Crucible feels more on the nose for right now.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I agree. What I thought was really interesting is, I have seen A Streetcar Named Desire a lot at the theatre, and I've seen it A few times on film and I studied it at a level I too really really love Tennessee Williams I think that claustrophobia no one writes claustrophobia the way the the way an oppressiveness the way that Tennessee Williams does and I actually think and this is shooting you've kept your powder dry I'm going to shoot my load straight away I actually think it still works really really well in the theater whereas it feels very of its time on film
2: Ah, oh, that's interesting. I agree with the first part of the statement. I'm interested to know why you say that about film, because I'm never going to see Marlon Brando do it anywhere but in film. And he absolutely is the best Stanley ever. Just a bit
0: too much for me. And this might really? be me being a philistine, but I found both of them. It just was too much. It was too much melodrama. It was too overwrought and i know obviously brando and lee had very very different acting styles that come together and i think they're brought together very very well but just yeah i found it exhausting and I, while i realise that isn't necessarily a criticism because i think that's what williams does that's what he builds that oppression that, that sort of oppressiveness not oppression oppressiveness it just ah oh, maybe i'm just a philistine but at the end of it i was just Do people genuinely really like the classics? Because whenever I watch a really old film, I'm just too distracted by the, oh, darling, well, I must, the swooning and the, uh, yeah, it was just too much for me. Whereas on stage, I think it's given a much more modern sensibility when I've seen it, obviously, because I'm in my 40s now, so I haven't seen it in 1951 on stage, but it just feels fresher.
2: Oh, that's interesting. I would say I don't agree with that. In fact, I think because it stretches outside of the parameters of the Mm. flat in this, it feels less claustrophobic. Mm, I agree. I agree. I would say in a good way, because I think that means that it gives them this. They sort of fill the space a bit more with their performances, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And just on the oppressiveness note, I think the other thing that is lacking a little bit in the film, hark at me, I mean, it's a classic, who the fuck am I? But (laughs) the other thing that's missing in a film that I've seen on stage is the heat. Now, whenever you watch a Tennessee Williams play, you'll very much know that these people are sweaty. And I don't think that comes across as well in the film as when I've seen this on stage. But maybe it's unfair to compare the two, but I feel that makes it feel more oppressive as well.
2: I agree with you on the swooning melodrama of Vivian Leigh, but obviously, yeah, that's because he's doing Stanislavski. He is the new world; she is the old world. Mm. And like, and that's like the whole theme of of a streetcar named Desire. So, it wo- I think it works really well. And also, the fact that actually, the thing is, Blanche is sympathetic, but I really don't like her. In fact, no. she actively does the things that I really hate about womanhood the most uh-huh. like she gets all of her self-worth from men and that is literally the least attractive quality a woman can have to me and I know it's because she's a woman not just of her time she's old-fashioned in ni- in the 1950s or the 1940s when this was written
0: of her time and of her status in fairness mm. to blunt the character
2: Yeah, and she doesn't have any other options. But I think that no other options thing, if we can talk about the end. I mean, the one thing you would say about Tennessee Williams is that he really fucking understands women. He has this major life event when he's younger in that his elder sister, who is mentally ill, was taken off and given a lobotomy Mm -hmm. and is obviously never the same again. And so women's sort of psyches he's really into. But he knows that in that circumstance that Stella both would not and could not leave Stanley. Right. And he knows that and they changed that fucking ending. Yeah.
0: So in the play, just in case people haven't read or seen the play, in the play, she just is very mute. She's not happy, but she is consoled by Stanley after Blanche is like taken away. Whereas obviously in the film, she goes upstairs to Eunice's with the baby and says she's never going back. Like she's clicked. She believes now that Blanche has been raped by Stanley and so she leaves him. And you're absolutely right. We've talked about this so much on the podcast. It is so hard for women to leave. It is so dangerous for Mm. women to leave, even if it seems like the most obvious thing they should do and they should have that safety away from their abuser. In the 1950s, it wasn't easier back then. So it's interesting that they decided
2: that was the message to put out there. But also the, the, the key to it is when, when, I mean, I know everything's open to interpretation, but I can give you about four interpretations here of the <laughs> ending in one go. The key thing to the ending is that it invites the question, Blanche is in an asylum, but who's really in prison? Who's really deluded? Who's really mad, to use that the verbiage that they would have used then? Which of the sisters is, is has come out worse from this in the sense, which of the sisters is more of a prisoner? And that question doesn't get asked at the end of the film because they take they change that ending.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being distracted by a cat. Not my cat, obviously. The other thing that we've done is we will have seen the director's cut of the film. So when it was released in cinemas in 1951, there was five minutes missing and it's such a key five minutes because Mm. just little bits of dialogue were taken away because they couldn't express that Blanche had been sleeping around because it was deemed immoral, that she, you know, was this woman who had loose morals or had been meeting with strangers is how she puts it. They also take away that first time that Stanley wails on Stella and he really wails on her off screen, but you see Brando's fist go back. Mm. There's a lot of force there. It's quite frightening. Then she goes upstairs to Eunice Eustace Eunice Eustace I think sorry he calls her that very famous scene where he's like Stella Mm. Stella and he's all remorseful and you see her kind of respond very quickly to that and start to leave to the other women's horror and as she walks down the stairs it's almost like she's in a trance the sexual energy there is what's pulling her down back to Stanley and she sort of swoons Mm. into him and it's very it's full of lust it's really heavy with lust and that wasn't in the original. And I think that's really interesting because with with that cut still there, then the ending makes a bit more sense mm. because that that energy is what keeps she knows it's it's a bad energy, but it is what keeps her there. They also toned down the scene with Brando and Lee just before Stanley rapes Blanche.
2: They also mm. toned that down to make it and <laughs> felt less sooner, sexual, it? yeah, yeah, and it, it ends, ends sooner yeah she does appear to be like in a trance and I wonder if it's because you know there are people now who don't understand why women don't leave let alone women in 1950 and I wonder whether they were trying to to sort of create this odd sort of shortcut in it by saying but he is incredibly manly do you know what I mean? He's almost hypnotically manly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's not why. It's not why she would stay.
0: Yeah. He's incredibly male. He is so yeah. manly. You oh, know, masculine, off...
2: macho. Those horrible sides. Yeah. Of it. Yes. A-
0: awful toxic masculinity. You say it that you said at the top, you know, that, that Stanley smells a rat. He probably smells off rat as well. He uh, is a yeah. sweaty, horrible animal of a man. And I think obviously there's a contrast there with how fucking pretty Marlon Brando was. And he was mm. really pretty. And that kind of push-pull of his masculinity Mm. for both sisters, I think, is really interesting. But not just the sisters, for his friends as well. Like, he's too much for most of his friends. He's he's too much man for most
2: of his friends and not in a good way. The first time we see him is literally having a bunch up. Yeah. Like, there he is over there. Like, he's the one waiting <laughs> on some guy. He gets back
0: and he's like, oh, do you mind if I take my T-shirt off? The sweat's just sticking to me. Bowling's really heavy work. And I'm like, well, it is if you have to have a punch-up every time you throw thrown a <laughs> yeah. ball. Because otherwise, I don't think temping
2: bowling is very sweaty work, to be honest with you, Stan. There is, like, and again, this is how it's written rather than how it's made. There is nuance in it. In as much as, at the start, right, Stanley's actually correct. You know, oh, he's, he's a, a Napoleonic coat well I mean he's technically correct with that as well but no Blanche is up to something she is lying to them and she's staying in his house and he does I mean he goes about it entirely the wrong way but they do have a right to know what's going on and she is holding it back from them and at the same point Stella chooses not to believe her sister but I think there is slightly more she's I don't think she's condemned for it particularly, which is a good thing. I mean, she's maybe condemned by fate by it a bit. But, you know, Blanche is also in many ways mad and has lied oh, to her. So absolutely. in many ways, like like Stella, it's not it's not a black and white issue for Stella as much as perhaps it could be. So I think there is nuance there.
0: And also Blanche isn't very nice to Stella despite relying on the kindness of her sister as opposed to the kindness of the stranger she's been relying on. There's a brilliant line and of course there's nuance because William's writing is gorgeous and most of it is just pulled from the play, obviously, because source material is excellent. But yeah, there's a line where she goes, oh, listen to me making you wait on me. And Stella says, oh, it's okay. It makes me feel like I'm back at home. And you're like, oh, that doesn't sound like it was much fun for Stella then. Gary had never seen it before and he's never read it and he's never seen the play and so it started and I said oh yeah by the way Blanche is an arsehole and then I went and Stanley's an arsehole too they're arseholes like there's not very many likable characters in it at all it's a tragedy it's all laid out at the beginning that this is going to start quite badly and go
2: downhill agreed Blanche is sympathetic when I say she's an asshole, I then immediately start mitigating which means she must be sympathetic and you say she obviously comes from this this time in this place where women were told that you needed a man and that 30 was old no wonder that she's she's ended up feeling like that but at the same point (laughs) would I want to hang around anywhere nearer no god no she'd get she'd power through your scotch mate there you go, there's another plot that's that's ever relevant. And I kind of played down a bit, I think, in the film. She doesn't come across as quite the raging alcoholic as she does on stage. I agree with you, yeah. They also play down, it's not directly said that her husband was gay for the sensibilities of 1951. Lee's performance
0: is outrageously good. Brando's is outrageously good. I just think they're not for me. So it's one of those where I can look at something and say like I can absolutely understand why this is sacred cow territory mm. why this was so transformative of film as well particularly brando and his approach to acting the method acting but I can still I can still say it just doesn't do
2: it for me now mm. yeah I mean I get that I actually think it's more it was more quiet in parts than I remembered I remembered him being like perpetually at that. And actually he's not. He's quite low key in quite a lot of it.
0: It's a beautiful performance. And then it builds up to these
2: explosions.
0: Yeah. Um, And he's, there's there's even moments of sort of tenderness in there because he plays Stanley as he is, which is a complicated bore, I suppose. He's, you know, Mm. he's a complicated man. He thinks he's smarter than he is. There's all sorts of stuff going on which is, and it's just there under the surface. And the fact that he gets that across is is so, so clever. Interesting. So, question. Interesting. Yes. Rated or dated? For me, it's dated. And I think, I mean, it looks dated and it feels very dated, but it's... I But streetcar itself still very rated. If I'm allowed to do that, I feel like I've I've run away from the binary nature of the question,
2: (laughs) Uh, or as we call it, doing a gen. (laughs) I think I'm going to say rated. I don't think think I can. uh, Yeah, I don't think I can separate it. I think a streetcar named Desire is basically such a fucking masterpiece that. You can't do a bad version of it. I mean, apart from that Simpsons one, obviously. <laughs>
0: um. <laughs> it made me want to go and see it at the theatre again. So yeah. in that case, you know, that that's powerful. It's still very, very powerful. There was also another interesting point. It was in Peter Bradshaw's piece. And he said, Blanche gets on a streetcar named Desire. She then has to change to one for cemeteries before getting off at Elysian Fields. And that is Desire, Death, Heaven. So the trajectory Mm. of the film is laid out in her very initial journey. And he said, obviously, he kind of did it. Obviously, everyone knows this. And I was like, I did not know that. That is very (laughs) interesting.
2: What piece of wonder is going to have not that in it next week? We do not know us yet. So our Jen is currently on
0: holiday, but she is while on holiday in the process of choosing what film to rate or date for next week so you know we're all on tenter hooks but I can say on a film note that something that is coming up on Saturday is a brand new flicking and sadly I wasn't involved in this chat they managed to fend for themselves without me and Mm. Hannah, Jen and Yosra are talking about Almost Famous and I've listened to it and it is an excellent chat so well worth uh, subscribing if you haven't already so it's in your inbox on Saturday thanks
1: and an issue for all women.